Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, September 26th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everyone. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. And Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Hi, Julie. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, so the really big news this week does not have much to do with health care. Something happened? On the other hand, it might. Of course, I am talking about the House of Representatives' launch of a formal impeachment inquiry against President Donald Trump. So Trump on Tuesday afternoon, just as the impeachment news was breaking, tweeted something to the effect of, nice legislative agenda you've got there, Congress, would be a shame if something happened to it. Seriously, can Congress compartmentalize the impeachment stuff enough to continue to work on drug prices and surprise bills and the other health items that they were hoping to get done? Joanne? Congress is very broken and uh, more broken than it was during the very broken period of the Clinton Mm -hmm. impeachment. Um, Partisan feelings are higher. People don't talk to each other. There's just a lot more bitterness in this town. Um, They will continue to go through the motions. They will hold hearings. They will hold press conferences. They will talk about things. Whether anything happens, it was always iffy, and it is iffier squared. (laughs) So at the end of the year, could they do some kind of scaled-down version of some of the things they're talking about? Is it going to be in both of their interests to show that something happened, albeit I don't think any of us expect a lot to happen on health care? Yes, they could do something on surprise drugs, they, surprise bills or something on, on, dr- on, on drugs or something else on, you know, throw together something else on cures to or opioids or whatever else they decide to throw in. Um, but I don't think any of us see a huge breakthrough of bipartisan legislative historic achievements to solve the problems of American health care. I wonder where sort of the president feels like he should weigh in. I mean, you know, on the one hand, he was saying, don't impeach me or I won't work with you on legislation. But maybe it would be better for him to work on legislation if only to change the subject. I think he also said this morning, just as we were coming in here, don't impeach me because the stock market is going to crash. But that was just a tweet I saw and I just glanced at it. So if I got it wrong, don't yell at me. Um, Rebecca. (laughs) So so I agree with Joanne. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of motion and not a lot of movement going forward. I mean, remember, what happened in 98 and 99, we did not have a lot of landmark legislation going forward that year. That was the first year that I was in Washington and I came in thinking we were going to have all these great policy debates. And the first week I was on the job, the blue dress from Monica Lewinsky was discovered. This was in January. And then later that year, then the House moved forward and started impeachment. And you know, we, we saw Congress doing reauthorizations of things that they had passed before. We saw them bust their own budget caps, but we didn't see them doing very much. So I, I agree. I mean, I think that maybe at the end of the year, there is a chance to put a few little things into a larger spending bill, maybe. But I just don't see, I mean, Democrats are not going to give up on the idea of negotiating prices for Medicare and for Senate drugs Re- and Medicare for, for drugs and Medicare and Senate Republicans are not going to go along with that. And it was always 
a tough climb, but it's it's even steeper now. I mean, yesterday there was this meeting of the entire House Democratic Caucus, and it was presumably on it was billed as something on prescription drugs, and nobody noticed it, and they ended up coming out with talking points on prescription drugs, but everybody was asking about impeachment. So, Paige, you actually have a story this morning that sort of speaks to this in a way because the president had been promising, um, you know, a, a, a fantastic new health plan like since March. Um, and of then, what year? Uh, no, of, yeah, <laughs> no, March of the. He'd been promising it so for, since so for, March of right, this for year, September for this <laughs> right. month. And this month yes. is almost over. Yeah. Right, and so now you, and yet they did say, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago that well, maybe we won't have a new health plan, but we'll at least have, you know, uh, some contingency plans for what will happen if this lawsuit actually rules the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. So what are you hearing from well, the administration? Yeah, it's been so hard to like report on this story the last few months, as I'm sure a lot of you resonate with, because I just think the plans have changed so many times with the the administration. I mean, one day we'll hear they're working on something the next day. Maybe not. I'd heard that there were all these plans to roll something out in September, and then those got put on the back burner. So what I'm hearing now is that what White House folks said yesterday is Trump is basically wants to give sort of this broad sweeping address on his vision for health care. And as part of that, he's going to announce another executive order, which would open the door to some drug importation and also try to bolster Medicare Advantage plans. But then as part of that, he also, I think, just wants to probably my guess would be he's going to kind of reiterate what you know what he's done on drug prices so far mm-hmm. some of the rules that they've proposed uh, I know that they're still working on this international index to tie some Medicare drug prices to lower prices in other countries um, but so I think overall this speech is basically going to be like an effort by the White House to try to look really solid on health policy, um, even amid this really dicey legal battle, which puts them in a really tricky position because as you all know we have this pending decision from the appeals court in Texas, which could strike the Affordable Care Act. And the administration is on sort of the politically unpopular side of this, which is to strike the whole law. So I think they realize they're in a really, really tight spot and sort of trying to think ahead to like damage control and how do you at at least formulate some kind of argument that you're going to be forward thinking on health care and at least have some kind of response to Democrats who are going to really ping them on like not supporting protections for people with existing conditions and that sort of thing. Do we think there's a fight within the administration about, you know, no matter what this the the appeals court says it obviously will probably go forward to the Supreme Court. They were pretty quick after the lower court ruling came down to say everything is the same. We're not going to, you know, we're going to continue to enforce the law. I assume they'll do the same thing. Um, There's no sign that they want. They do not have a replacement plan ready. There is division within the administration about what it should look like, nor do they know what the court is going to do. The court could just strike the mandate in certain – I don't mean just, but I mean the court <laughs> – just in quotes um, – the court could could strike the mandate in related consumer protections, which will hurt people with preexisting conditions. The court could strike the entire law. The court could send it back to the – I mean, the court anything. Whatever the court does will probably be stayed because it will eventually end up in the city. It could still go to the unbanked Fifth Circuit and then it could go to the Supreme Court. So whatever the court does will be another round in a legal battle. They will not pull the plug on people's health insurance the day later. It'll Although this, it's likely to happen. I mean, we're, we're, we're creeping up on open enrollment for next year. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But the, I, I mean, this goes into 2020 and possibly 2021 um, yeah. in terms of how fast it goes through the courts. And uh, I think the message from the administration 
um, if the part of or all of the law I struck is going to be nothing to see here. And they're going to be like trying to sort of make this argument that nothing's going to happen right now. Nobody's going to lose your health insurance at this very moment. So don't worry about it, everybody. But it also <laughs> lets the Republicans say, see, the Obama, the you know, Obamacare is gone. You, we have to, you know, we will re- elect us because, you know, we that failed. So let us try to f- come up with something else. I don't know that's a successful message given, the, you know, the health politics of the last few years. But I, I, I mean, look, this is a really complicated election year. We've talked all along about um, how, yes, consumers and voters really care about health care, but we have a 24-second news cycle. And um, who knows what's going to be really on the agenda next year. Clearly, you know, Ukraine, if people <laughs> doesn't, it's not the Ukraine. All of America now knows that. Um, Except it, Rudy Giuliani. Right. So, so, I mean, it's really fluid. The other thing is that this president and other presidents and other politicians, but he's particularly good at it. I mean, they change the subject. So if Trump really starts seeing his popularity plummeting and he's really in, you know, impeachment begins really picking up steam and he starts losing some Republican support, comes out with, he could, you know, come out with some really popular free, you know, you, could, you know, erase medical debt like Bernie suggests. Mm-hmm. You know, who we'll knows? get to that. You know, but who knows what twists and turns? All you know, what we always say, it's you know, none of us are ever going to be out of a job. All right. Well, one thing Congress <laughs> does have to do, and we haven't really talked about this for several months, is to continue to fund the government. October first, Tuesday, is the start of fiscal 2020, and while the House has made good progress on the annual appropriations bills, and there was a pretty big budget deal back last spring, was it last spring? A couple of months ago. Um, The Senate has, surprise, not managed to push many of the bills. I don't think any of the bills across the finish line. Uh, Rebecca, where are we with the spending bills, particularly those that fund HHS, which we're most interested in here? Yes, we are not getting very far. Um, We saw the subcommittee uh, committee discussion postponed on the health in human services, education, and labor bill because of abortion. Because surprise, surprise, it always comes back. Um, Democrats wanted to offer an amendment on family planning. As we all know, the Trump administration has this rule that um, that affects eligibility for the two hundred eighty-six million dollar family planning program known as Title Ten, and the Democrats wanted to block that. And if they had gotten to committee, then there are two Republicans who would have probably voted for it, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine. So the Republicans said, "Mm, we don't really want to talk about that. Let's put that on hold. And um, we also saw that with the state and foreign operations bill as well. There's There was the Democratic effort to deal with what Democrats call the global gag rule, which is, um, or Mexico City language, however you want to refer to it, that affects um, uh, money for um, non-governmental the, the organizations. Interna- right, the international version of the one that they're now that for Title X. Basically, you can't talk about abortion. You can't get federal money and talk about abortion. Right, exactly. So we haven't seen them move forward. Um, it's Right now, we're talking about a continuing resolution that will just keep the lights on until November 21st. Then we're going to be having this debate again. Also, in this bill are several little things affecting health care. You know, some things like providing money to Puerto Rico for their Medicaid program or community health centers. And so we're going to have this discussion again right before Thanksgiving. Oh, boy. So <laughs> last year, the government shut down. I, it was actually, it, well, technically, it was this year, too. I mean, it seemed so long ago that we shut the government down for lack right. of spending bills. I mean, every... Oh, yeah, that wasn't that over Christmas? <laughs> yes. And well, then all of January. Like four years ago. <laughs> I know. 
Well, Julie, I remember you and I talking on the podcast last year about how well things were going. Remember how they had enacted the labor HHS education bill for the first time since 1996 before the fiscal year and everything looked great and defense was funded and, you know, three fourths of the government was funded. And then we had this 35 day historic shutdown. So, well, you know, you like, just never know. What's it seemed happen. like things were looking more promising, too, in July. I just remember talking to Murray's office. So there there was, I think, an agreement like Pelosi had, I guess, reportedly agreed to like no poison pills, right. so-called mm-hmm. poison pills. And then I remember talking to Murray's office and they raised this idea that they were going to try to introduce this amendment to reverse the Title 10 rules. And I, I remember I was like, isn't that a poison pill? I feel like most <laughs> Republicans aren't going to agree to that. And and they sort of gave me this. They were like, well, Title 10 is a popular program, so we don't view it as a, as a poison pill. And I was like, I, really? I'm. Pretty sure that fits in the category. I would say but I think that violates the spirit of the budget deal that they reached. Pretty sure, yeah. 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 Just What's this the morning, definition? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just this morning, a, a conservative Republican who is retiring, Johnny Isaacson, um, just an hour ago, said he was going to suggest funding gun safety research at the CDC. So that's something. Mm. If the Democrats had done it, it would have been considered a poison bill. It's quite interesting. Uh, that a he wants to put that on the CR, yeah, I guess I don't, I, or Labor H. Oh. That's, That's interesting. Well, the House, the House does have fifty million in their bill, so it's interesting though, because because uh, Chairman Blunt of the subcommittee that handles this has said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. So this is this is this, a, a Republican from Georgia. He is retiring, but he's not a moderate. Um, retirement does give you a little freedom to say things, mm-hmm. um, and he's not calling. He, this is not a background check bill. This is not a gun regulation bill. This is a we do not understand. What causes these shootings? I was about to say triggers, which is an unintentional pun, but we don't really understand why people pick up a gun and go shoot up a school or a movie theater or a rock concert or whatever else, right? So, and and the CDC has not been able to research this, and he came out which, this morning, which was which a ban, was a ban in, by a conservative Southern Democrat. What ninety six? When was it? the Dickey Amendment? Yeah. Yes. Uh, but wh- in the appropriation bill, my, right. my point is that this is the place where this right. happens, right? And mm-hmm. and um, Secretary Azar has actually signaled that he is open to research, not advocacy, but research. And um, but it hadn't happened, and I don't know that this will happen either. It's unlikely in the current environment, but the polls show that the people in the country do not agree with everything the NRA says about guns and, and the people. It's a huge public concern. So that was sort of an interesting, I mean, I took the Metro today so instead of driving, so I got to read all the breaking news before we come in here. I can't give you beyond the well, first three paragraphs of anything. Since you mentioned Senator Isaacson and the fact that he is leaving, I believe he has some health issues, um, that uh, it, there are reports out of Georgia that... Uh, oh, this is a goodie. That, that, <laughs> that someone who's Surprise. throwing his hat into the ring to be appointed, the, remember when a senator leaves midterm, the governor gets to appoint uh, a senator until the next election, and Tom Price, the f- former congressman from Georgia, also former Secretary of Health and Human Services who left under a bit of a cloud shall we say, um, appears to want to come back to Washington. Or on a cloud, should we? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure the flight to Philly actually got through. It was long enough to get through the clouds. <laughs> Still might have been under it. Uh, yeah, we, we were sort of joking before we came in here that maybe he was promising the governor of Georgia that he'll walk to work. <laughs> <laughs> As, any, as as most of our listeners remember, Tom Price was the first cabinet member of the Trump cabinet to step down uh, after uh, my colleagues found out that he had been tootling around the country in expensive charter planes, including one between Washington and Philadelphia where you really could have walked faster. So um, it, it's a little I – de- I think we would be surprised to see him – in the Senate, although nowadays you never know what's going to happen. You gonna never happen. know never what's going to happen. Who has what on who, right? 
<laughs> well, this week, my colleagues over the firewall at the Kaiser Family Foundation put out their annual report on the state of employer health insurance. And the state this year is expensive. Family premiums now average more than $20,000 a year, with workers expected to pick up more than $6,000 of that. At the same time, average deductibles over the last decade have basically doubled, now topping $1,600 per year. And one of the big takeaways of this year's report is that employer insurance is not monolithic. People with workplace insurance have much more or much less generous benefits depending on what their employer offers. What stood out for you guys? I, you know, I, the whole the whole trend towards high deductible plans is really interesting. Seeing that it was 162 percent of an increase over the decade when workers' wages only went up 26 percent, I believe that that's a big difference. And you know, there wasn't a huge change this year, but it's just a continuing issue. And you know, I think for family premiums, they said that um, the workers' share of that increased by eight percent. That's a big deal, and I think that's why on the campaign trail we're seeing. Folks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren feel emboldened to talk about government-run health care now. Well, I mean, I think we've we've said this pretty much every – what episode is this? You know, <laughs> I think we, we've talked pretty much every single week about the cost of health care and how neither party really has come up with this. So it's, it's difficult, right? I mean, it's really difficult. But, I mean, what really struck me about reading that report is that, you know, a family making twenty five or $30,000 and they're paying six grand – something like that for healthcare. How do you do it? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I make more than $25,000 and $6,000 for healthcare is a lot of money for me plus everything else we end up spending. So it, it's, I just, you know, we keep saying it's unsustainable, it's unsustainable. And yet, as you know, many economists have pointed out, we keep sustaining the unsustainable. And I don't know what the breaking point is. If a few years ago, you would have said, the average family plan is going to cost twenty grand. I think all of us would have said, no, it won't be that bad. And it is that bad. And next year, it's going to be worse. And we should remind people that this is the employer right. world, the employer-provided health insurance, which is where the majority of Americans still get their health insurance. Right. You but know? if you're buying it yourself on the open market without any employer contribution... I mean, it is a. We've said this over and over again. I mean, it's not affordable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I would, if I were Senator Sanders or Senator Warren, I would definitely be seizing on this report because they're the ones who have been kind of, as they've tried to respond to the criticisms of Medicare for all, they've pointed the finger back at the employer-sponsored plan, saying. We don't really have a great system now to begin with. Look at what people have to kick in and then look at the out-of-pocket in, adu- in addition to the huge deductibles, et cetera. Um, so I think the data probably bolsters their argument just that the current system is kind of unsustainable and not great for people, regardless, right. of, regardless of whether you think Medicare for all would be a better system mm-hmm. or not. And I think mm-hmm. the Republicans right. can seize on it, too, because for them, you know, they can just say, see what Obamacare did. Now, it's way more complicated than see what Obamacare did. Its medical costs are, are beyond Obamacare. I mean, there are many, many, many dynamics in this country. Well, I've always Um, said that's the biggest criticism. I think the most effective criticism of Obamacare has been that they subsidized the individual market and they did some things to bring down premiums, perhaps by requiring everybody to buy coverage, even though that is no longer the case. But that sort of systemic fundamental problem wasn't really fixed in the ACA. No, but it wasn't fixed before the ACA or during or, I mean, it's just not fixed. And, 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 it just gets worse and worse and worse. One of the, one of the things that jumped out for me, I remember during the fights over uh, what were first medical savings account and later health HSA. savings mm-hmm. accounts, um, you know, where they were saying, oh, people would have to have uh, 
deductibles of $1,000. And as we know, people don't have $1,000 lying around and nobody would be able to pay their deductible. And they said, oh, it's okay. They'll have these savings accounts where, you know, they'll they'll have money and they can draw the deductible from that and employers will provide some of that money. And um, that has turned out to be... Now, so many more people have these high deductibles. I mean, $1,000 seems kind of quaintly small. Um, and yet most people do not have the savings account that goes with it where you're supposed to be able to draw it to pay your deductible. And I think that's sort of the origin of a lot of these surprise bills is that the hospitals saw this coming. They said these people are going to show up in our emergency room with their $1,000 or $2,000 or now $6,000 deductibles, and they're going to get a $10,000 bill. And even if the insurance pays $4,000 of it, we're going to need to go after them for the $6,000 that they don't have. So I think this is, I mean, this sort of fundamental mismatch over the past 15 years or so with the amount of, of the just the actual amount of dollars that people that insured people are expected to cough up to pay for their share of their medical care really outstripping anybody's ability to pay for it. It almost mm-hmm. makes it better if you have a chronic health condition because you're like, well, I'd have to pay money anyway. But if you're healthy, you're even more indignant that you have to pay all of this money. <laughs> no, but I mean, you, you know, may never meet your deductible. <laughs> right. You're going to always meet your deductible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I find the whole issue interesting. I mean, you know, we've had this debate about whether people who have skin in the game will will curb costs and that will be a pressure on the system. And I think what we found is that people do not distinguish between care they really need and care that they that's, you know, not necessarily something they have to have. And so people go without care that they may really need, and that may cost the system in the long run. And they get care that they don't need, which also costs the system in the long run. Right. I mean, there's a mismatch. You get care you don't want or need, which I've personally experienced quite recently, and you get care. You don't get care you need. And the incentives in our system are still, by and large, there are are exceptions, but the the chronic uh, prevention, chronic chronic disease management, and so forth, uh, those, they're just not a lot of it. We still are an acute care system, and the incentives to go do the things you need to do to stay healthy is not how our system is built. And the incentive, I mean, that's the other thing that we haven't mentioned, that one of the reasons that this keeps going up is because the medical system keeps charging more. Everybody looks at the insurers, mm-hmm. but it's really the doctors in the hospitals and all the ancillary consultants who come in and tell the doctors in the hospitals, here's how you can bill more and make more money. Yeah, upcoding um, are us. Yeah, It's exactly. like, you know, instead of American health care, it should be called American upcoding. Yeah, and, and that this is, and, and you, we can see this uh, in Congress's inability to do anything about surprise mm-hmm. bills or drug prices because all all of this money is somebody's income, and if you mm-hmm. have that much income, you can hire people to come to Washington and throw sand in the gears. So, but right. I do, can I, without going into a long personal tirade, I, I can say briefly that I, I was in an accident the other day, and when I went to urgent care, and when they um, told me I needed a I should go to the ER and get a CAT scan without seeing a doctor first. And I said I didn't want a CAT scan without seeing it. I wasn't sure I needed one, and I sure wasn't going to go and get one without seeing a doctor. Their response was. Oh, you're just seeking pain drugs, and they accuse me of 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 you know being a of coming in with making up my accident to get. That's when you opiate. tell them you're a health because <laughs> because the fact that I didn't want a CAT scan that I might not have needed to them meant that I was looking for opioids, and then it degenerated where I you know I felt like I was a four year old at playground. Well, we're not giving you opioids. Well, if you gave them to me, I wouldn't take them anyway. Well, we're not giving them to you. Well, I don't want them. And I you know I I did not I was not able to see a doctor in urgent care. That was the end of the story. I ended up in the ER. 
<laughs> yes, our, our incentives are not in a good place. All right, well, let's have a quick update on And I'm fine. Oh, before everybody quit, before everybody <laughs> asked me on Twitter, I still have a headache, but I am okay. <laughs> uh, speaking of headaches, we will have a quick update on campaign 2020. We did talk a few weeks ago about Bernie Sanders' plan to eliminate more than $80 billion in medical debt held by consumers. Now we have the details on that plan. Any, anything jump out at anybody? I spent some time looking at this the other day um, and actually called up um, someone who runs a charity that actually buys up medical debt just to talk about kind of the logistics of how this would work. And um, this person really seemed to think that it's what he's how he's proposing to wipe out this debt wouldn't necessarily help the people who need it the most and that it would be really hard to do it by going to private credit agencies. So basically what Sanders is doing is um, – the $81 billion is the medical debt that is reported to credit agencies. That's actually not – that's a small percentage of total medical debt, um, which is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, but this is the debt reported to agencies. Um, but to actually buy that, you would have to find out which hospitals and doctors groups hold those accounts. Um, and then if you really want to, like, help the people that – you know, have maybe filed for bankruptcy or would be, um, you know, of lower income, um, you know, this is not going to be a way to find those people. Um, I think there are reasons that Sanders proposed this. He wants to solve for like a lot of people do experience the problem of if their debt is, you know, affects their credit score. And so part of his proposal was to ensure that that's not a part of people's credit score. But I just think, like, logistically, it would be really hard to do this. Uh, but I was also surprised to read that on the secondary market how little that medical debt is estimated. Yes, I, right. I think it was in the Times that that, that 81, 81 million is, is going to go billion. for five. Yeah. 81 billion is going to end up being sold for 500 million or something yeah. like that. Like, that was, yeah, no, it's true. When I talked to this guy, he basically was like, you know, mo these hospitals know they're not going to get paid most of this. And so often, if you actually bundle a lot of these debts together, they'll accept it for pennies on the dollar. Right. right? They sell so them to debt collectors, and then right. the debt collectors mm -hmm. get to keep get whatever what they, they get. Right. Yeah, they get right. whatever they. Which is why debt collectors call people, you know, once an hour for you know for weeks at a time to try to get them to cough up something. There's also, of course, the issue and uh, of you know what this does for people's incentives to buy health insurance because if you're out there saying you're going to wipe out medical debt, well, then the incentive is going to be why should I buy insurance to begin with now. I think Sanders would respond to that by saying he wants to pair this with his like broad vision for Medicare for all. And under that vision, of course, people wouldn't incur medical debt anymore. So the idea is you would implement that. You would wipe out as much of past medical debt as you could so that you could have kind of a clean slate. Um, but, you know, this is this is Bernie. So he's, um, you know, he's coming up with these like really ambitious ideas that may or may not work in reality. Yes. Well, uh, we also mentioned last week, but didn't really talk about much that uh, Pete Buttigieg put out his health plan, which I was reading through it. It looks an awful lot like the plan that uh, that former Vice President Biden put out a couple of months ago, which makes me wonder why he felt compelled to put out a specific plan at all. Is this sort of his, he'd been, you know, he's, he calls it Medicare for all who want it. It's a uh, sexier title than public option. <laughs> It yeah. sounds better. Yeah. It does, although <laughs> it was very confusing. I, I, somebody asked about it in a poll, and it's like the way the poll question was was phrased because of the way that phrase works made it look completely sort of gibberish. Sort of a good polling question, and which is easier, understanding his health care plan or pronouncing his, his name? name. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the health care plan. But I mean, it's, you know, we're, people have been. We've noted a couple of times that Elizabeth Warren has sort of 
uh, rather purposefully. She has a plan for everything except health care. Yes. And then she and she's sort of positioning herself as being, yeah, I'm for Bernie. I'm right. for Medicare for all. But all these other plans that would be more gradual, I might be for those, too. Um, that's, and she's like mm-hmm. very obviously avoided in the last debate. She was asked a couple of times to clarify whether she thinks that private coverage would no longer exist. And she noticeably evaded answering that question. Um, I think ideologically, she definitely is on board with Medicare for all. But I think she has a very different approach than Senator Sanders. I've heard that she's just in talking to folks at her campaign. I think she's just a lot more pragmatic. And so she's less willing to kind of draw this like line in the sand. I think if she were to become president, I think she would just be sort of less ideologically rigid, perhaps, than Senator Sanders. Even though they're both sort of generally coming from the same place on the sort of ideological scale. Right. I think they've just – their personality-wise, they're different. And I think they would act differently as president. But yeah, ideologically, they're pretty aligned. No, I mean, it's how do you get there, how fast do you get there, and what does it look like when you get there? So um, right now, she's really just saying, I'm with Bernie. But we all suspect that if and when she became president, she would not actually stick to every word of the Bernie Sanders plan. Well, I think she's going to have to to be a little more forthcoming before that. (laughs) Yes, but she's, you know, she can answer, you know, they can say, Senator uh, Senator Warren, where's your plan? And she can say, you know, well, let me talk about climate change. So (laughs) (laughs) they all do that. I'm not picking on her. I mean, what politician on either party doesn't? Well, they have to appeal to the base, the progressives early on, and then they have to pivot to the general election. So I think she's holding back a little bit. I'll be interested to see now that she's, in theory, the front runner, um, that whether what what the other candidates do at the next debate um, to see if you can. I just remember was in 2016, what was it? And also in 2012 in the Repu- on the Republican side, basically the leader changed about every month. There was somebody who was out in front and then they would go down and then the next person would take their turn. So we have we've seen a lot more stability in the Democratic race, at least among the sort of few clustered at the top. But I think there's been some frustration among like health advocates and seeing what's talked about at the debates, because most of it's about been about, you know, the differences over how to achieve universal coverage. And just coming back to what we already talked about with the problems with the cost with employer sponsored coverage um, and the fact that if you look at the uninsured population, half of those people are eligible for programs we already have. Um, So you could do a lot to reduce the uninsured rate just by publicizing and helping people to maybe do automatic enrollment and such. Um, But just the fact that they've spent a lot of time bickering about how to get to universal coverage and a little bit less time talking about health care costs, which kind of plagues every American. Right. I mean, pretty insurance. much right. other than the Medicare, the, excuse me, the Medicaid gap, which is what, 17 states still, 19 states? 14 states. 14 states. So other than the states that haven't. And it's only a couple of million people at this point. Right. We have the framework for affordable, for, for universal coverage. We do not have the framework for affordable coverage. I mean, everybody, uh, the immigration is a separate political issue, the people who are undocumented. But for, you know, American citizens, we have Obamacare does create a framework where you can get covered. It doesn't mean that you can afford it. But people are still confused. And we've, we've mentioned this before, but it's always it's a point worth mentioning over and over again, because there is so much confusion is that people treat single payer and universal coverage as synonyms. They are not the same thing. One is an ends and one is a means. The Democrats united on universal coverage. They are not united on the means to get there. Either the timetable or the means. All right. Well, good. I think we have proved that there is more news this week than just what's happening right this minute on Capitol Hill. Can I also <laughs> say I didn't cause the accident? Yes. You can also <laughs> say you didn't cause the accident. Good. You were not driving either, right? No, I was a passenger. I was rear-ended. <laughs> 
All right. It is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Uh, Paige, why don't you start this week? Yeah, well, this story really jumped out to me. Um, it's by, by Kaiser Health News, Bram Sable-Smith. It's, it's not just insulin. Diabetes patients struggle to get crucial supplies. And it jumped out to me because as a type 1 diabetic, I really resonated with this. Um, the, the article is about um, kind of laying out, you know, type 1s need insulin. But if you really want to manage the disease well and kind of draw from all this new technology we have, you need a continuous glucose monitor. You need all the gear that goes with that. You need the pump. Um, there's just there's so much, um, and the article addresses sort of the issues of having to get prior authorization for a lot of these things and the struggle that this one patient went through. Um, so it was just interesting because that's sort of been in the back of my mind as I've heard, you know, the problems of the high cost of insulin address. We've had hearings, um, which is a problem, but in my own personal experience, um, it's actually just that's just a part, a tip, tip of the iceberg. Um, there's just all of this other stuff, and, and it's it's just kind of always this, you know, it's always on your to-do list, you know, make sure that you have your CGM and your sensors and your all of that stuff. So, And do you use that that monitor? Or I don't. He one? used a Dexcom, um, which is actually the most popular CGM. I use Medtronic. Um, but and I haven't had as many problems with prior authorization. I'll say that. Um, but they don't tell you up front when you know when you start using this. You hear all about all about the benefits of using a CGM, and it, it has been shown to improve diabetic management and lower your A1C. But man, it's a learning curve. I got all of this stuff in February, and I just now feel like I'm kind of starting to get the hang of it. So, <laughs> but I mostly just wanted to complain a little bit That's about fine. life as a as a diabetic. So. Thank, you, thank you for the first person endorsement of the, yes. of the story. <laughs> yes, right. Rebecca. All right. So I chose want to reduce suicides, follow the data to medical offices, motels, and even animal shelters. And that's by Maureen O'Hagan at Kaiser Health News. I thought this was a really interesting story about harnessing the power of data to really solve problems. So this woman is the epidemiologist in a county, and she was wondering why what's behind the suicide rate. And she dug down and created a way to go out when the when the medical examiner is examining deaths, have a checklist of different things. And they found a variety of different things, like people who drop off their pets at animal shelters may be at risk, or people who are at checking into hotels or motels may be at risk. And so they started this training program to train people who work in animal shelters to hand out a pamphlet to people. And they uh, realized that people who are being evicted are at risk of suicide. So the sheriff's deputy now gives them information about mental health clinics when they go to evict people. So I think that, um, you know, we're, we're all, I'm, I'm fascinated by how you can use data. And I think that this is a really practical way that people can look and, and other counties can look to see what they can do about a really serious problem. And they've had a 40% decrease in their suicide rate. Joanne. Uh, there was a piece in The New Yorker by D.T. Max called Paging Dr. Robot. A pathbreaking surgeon prefers to do his cutting by remote control. It begins with a wonderful anecdote. It was his medical student watching surgery and realized he couldn't stand the sight of blood. Um, went on to become a surgeon, is a big, not only a big advocate of um, da Vinci and other robotic surgery, but is also sort of a virtuoso in using it. There's still a lot of controversy about whether it's being overused, whether it's being used in the right settings, whether it's, um, you know, it's should be used, but in, in, in a narrower sets of circumstances where you really might need that precision, a robot's prong is smaller than a human finger. Um, 
so I, I don't, you know, so th- th- even though there is expert, there is d- d- um, dispute about the optimal use of it, the sort of story of how and where it's being used and sort of taking you inside the ER and watching the surgery. I mean, not literally, but narratively watching the surgery. was It's a good read. It's long, but it's good. From the New Yorker. New Yorker. It's long even for the New Yorker. <laughs> All right. Well, I am cheating a little and calling out a story from the week before last, but I'm still thinking about it. So here it is. It's by my KHN colleague, Sarah Jane Tribble, and it ran on NPR. It's called Air Ambulances Woo Rural Consumers with Memberships That May Leave Them Hanging. It's part of Sarah's ongoing series about Fort Scott, Kansas, a rural town whose hospital shut down earlier this year and how residents are adjusting to life without a hospital nearby. Now, we have talked quite a bit about how air ambulances are pretty much the top of the price pyramid when it comes to surprise medical bills charging in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, it turns out they've got a deal for you, folks for whom that's the only way to get to high-level care in an emergency. You can buy a membership, and if you have a problem that hap- and that happens to be the air ambulance that gets the call, you're free and clear. Of course, if you end up in someone else's air ambulance, that's a problem. And of course, there are multiple air ambulance companies serving the same broad areas. In North Dakota, the story points out there are nine separate air ambulance companies. So if you really want to be protected, you have to become a member of all nine. Somehow this does not feel like the answer consumers are looking for, but you really should read or listen to the story. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at at Rebecca Adams DC. I'm at PW underscore Cunningham. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.